Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. Hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and I also write an advice column. Whenever I research my pieces, I get to speak to various highly knowledgeable experts, and I always come off the phone buzzing with everything I've learnt. These conversations usually happen in private and have to be cut down in order to fit my word count. But here, for the first time, you have a chance to listen to the sort of conversations we have in much more detail and depth. Nearly five years ago, I was told my dad had six to eight weeks to live. In the event, he had eight days. I was with him in the last few days and it became very obvious very quickly that he was dying. I come from a culture where death is talked about openly and routinely, sometimes a bit too much. I was comfortable talking about death, but there I was in central London and it was my dad dying and I was scared. I knew he didn't have long left, but I didn't want to mess up what little time he had by doing something wrong. The night before he died, I decided to take a crash course in death. I read everything I could about death, and I spoke to a death doula in Scotland, and I asked everyone I knew if they'd been with someone as they died and what happened. Don't spare me any details, I remember saying to them. I wanted to know what to expect when someone dies, because facts comfort me. I learnt through all these conversations that although all deaths like all births are unique there is a process and most deaths follow a pattern. This podcast covers what I learned that day and that night and what I've learned since and what I needed to know as I sat with my dad. It may not be for everyone to go into this much detail but it helped me. Here I talk to now retired palliative care Dr Catherine Mannix who's also the author of a brilliant book called With the End in Mind which is a collection of death stories and it talks in a lot more detail about what we've spoken about here. You might find this useful if you're interested about death, it's something that's going to happen to all of us if you know someone who's died and perhaps you weren't ready to talk about what happened to them at the time or if unfortunately you do know somebody who is dying and you want to know what to expect. Lastly, just a gentle warning that although we don't go into graphic details in this podcast, we do talk about what happens when someone dies. It's a practical guide and we do discuss specifics. So if today isn't the time for you to listen to this thing, maybe revisit it at a future date. Hello. 
Hello, Catherine. I'm very excited to talk to you, actually, because death is a subject that I grew up with. I took a bit of a crash course in death, actually. I spoke to lots of people that night. I learned a lot and I realised that death is a process. And what struck me, in fact, was how like birth it is, but in reverse. Absolutely. Do you know, it's it's a real eye-opener when you talk to people and draw that parallel because the whole world knows about giving birth, don't they? That, you know, there's TV programs, dramas, documentaries. Everybody knows it's this kind of biological process that it starts in this way. It's got these phases. The phases are the same from one person to the next, you know, maybe last a little bit longer or shorter. But And yet at the end of it, when a mum's given birth to the baby, she feels she's had this completely unique experience. And yet the midwife or the obstetrician has seen what they always see during birth. And I think it's really helpful for people to understand that dying is a process, just like birth is a process. And again, individual, every person's experience is their experience with their important people with them if they can be there. So it feels unique. And yet those of us who look after lots of dying people are seeing the same process every time. I think it's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Well, I was fascinated, actually. And I mean, although it was unbelievably sad, I was very close to my dad. It was also kind of magical. I felt for a bit like I'd stepped into another world and it changed me for a while. I sought out people who'd experienced it because I wanted someone, I wanted to share that experience. I guess like new parents, you know, how the world splits in two at that moment where you think, you know, they understand what I've been through. But I was totally fascinated by the process I mean in that because my father died so quickly we only had a hospice worker for the last few hours and I was struck by her confidence the whole process fascinated me I felt like I'd been given x-ray specs really into another world and in fact when I was with my father-in-law although not actually when he died but as he was dying I was really confident and completely unafraid when you meet someone for the first time you being a palliative care doctor, you would have met them. Not always, I know, from your book, but sometimes in a hospice. What might you look at to enable you to know what stage they're at? Great question. Lots of people ask it as well. Part of the understanding is to understand what the process is. The thing that's really interesting about dying, and, and I hope people who are listening to us will forgive us for being intrigued and interested because they may be listening in sorrow or in anxiety. But really, I think the more we understand, the easier it is emotionally then to walk alongside somebody who's who's doing this. So the thing we notice, whatever the illness is, is that towards the end of life, the thing that really changes the most is the person's energy levels. So it doesn't really matter whether their illness is heart failure or dementia or some sort of cancer. There's this common pathway towards the end of life and people are tired, they're weary, they can't do so much anymore and they recharge their energy batteries by sleeping. Most of us have actually had that experience just if we were really unwell at some time. You know, if you have flu, like real flu, you just can't get out of bed some days. So sleep is a thing that restores us when our body is wearied by illness. And that's what's happening towards the end of life. 
How is death tiredness different? Okay, I think it isn't different. It's tiredness in context. And we're talking about somebody where this is a progressive pattern of increasing tiredness mm-hmm. over a period of time. In this story, this person has an illness or perhaps a person is very, very old. So it's not that there's a specific illness, but just all the organs now are also very, very old. And keeping up energy just is harder. And people recharge by sleeping. So my parents are in their 80s. They have a snooze every afternoon. I don't think they're dying. I think they're pacing their energy because they're not getting progressively more tired. They're not sleeping for longer and longer every day. They're just using sleep as a tool. So that's, you know, that's a really good pro tip as well, isn't it? If yeah, you're not well, that, if we're tired and tired and weary, have a snooze. And, and we do something about being brave and strong and resisting sleep. And it just is so unhelpful. So sleep is our friend. Sleep is a restorative. If you're tired enough to need a sleep, you're well enough to wake up at the other end of it. Sleep is safe. So there's a really important message. So your energy levels are part of the whole story. They start to dip. And what else? As time goes by, what happens is that this person just is more weary, is sleeping more, is awake less. But if the illness isn't affecting their mind or their brain, then when they're awake, they are their normal person. If this is a person who's already got an illness that affects their brain, like dementia, then when they wake up, they have their same level of dementia that they had before. The dementia doesn't start galloping simply because the dying process has started. So we can still communicate with them in the same way we always used to. The next change is quite subtle and the person themselves doesn't actually notice it. And that is that during their periods of being asleep, they dip into unconsciousness. They actually go into a coma for a little while and they don't notice that. But we would know it because we needed to wake them up for something. So if somebody is expecting a really important phone call, a visitor pops in to see them, or maybe the illness they've got is something that causes them symptoms and they're taking regular medications to keep the symptoms away. And we can't wake them up because it's medicine time for their pain or breathlessness or nausea or whatever. So when they wake up, they tell us they've had a nice sleep, but we know that it was deeper than sleep this time. And sorry, how do we know? Because it was harder to wake them? Because we couldn't wake them up, because we tried really hard and they were completely unrousable. When do they rouse then? What's happening is that there's a pattern of being awake and then dipping into sleep and then coming back up into wake and then dipping into sleep and dipping deeper and deeper and then coming up again into sleep and then back into awake. So there's this waking and sleeping cycle going on. But as time goes by, some of that sleep is actually deeper than sleep and it is unconsciousness. And when they're unconscious, you can't wake them? Unconsciousness is a state of being in a coma. But because the brain is adjusting backwards and forwards, it's moving back up again into sleep and then awake. When they're in that bit of unconsciousness, if I had to give someone some medication, you said it was re- it would be really hard to rouse them. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to. We wouldn't be able to waken them. And that's a way of finding out that unconsciousness is, isn't, a, isn't a scary thing. You don't even know it's happening. But it also means at this point that if it's important to take medicines to keep symptoms away, you don't want somebody to miss the time when the medicine should have been given 
and they wake maybe an hour or two hours later, by which time the medicine's previous dose has worn off and they wake up with their, their pain has come back or the breathlessness has come back. So this is the phase in an illness where the doctors or the nurses who are looking after that person will find a different way of giving the symptom management drugs. It might be injections. It might be the dose goes into that little syringe driver. It might be in parts of continental Europe, it would be suppositories. Some drugs come in patches, but ways of giving the drug so that it won't run out and then the person wakes up with horrible symptoms. I understand. Yeah, I've seen that. That might happen towards the end of living, which means we start to use a syringe driver to replace reliable swallowing towards the end of living and that makes people frightened that the syringe driver causes the dying whereas in fact the syringe driver is just another one of the signs that things are moving and we're having to adjust to make sure the person remains comfortable so the drugs in the syringe driver are the same drugs they've previously been having and they were awake with those drugs it isn't the drugs that are making them sleepy. If you're like a lay person and you, you're sitting with someone and suddenly you can't wake them and you know that they're dying, that could be quite frightening for that, the person by the bed. Um, and so I think it's important to say at that bit that, you know, you can check that they're breathing. Yeah. And the next part of the story is to look at the way people are breathing. So many of us have slept with a snorer. <laughs> we know that breathing when we're deeply asleep goes in cycles of fast to slow and deep to shallow. And we hear that the snoring gets louder and louder and louder. Well, when we're deeply unconscious, we have just automatic breathing. The only bit of the brain that's still working at that stage is the bit that drives our breathing. And what it does is drives breathing reflexes that we can watch the patterns of. And the pattern is that the person might be breathing quite deeply and then gradually their breathing may become more shallow and it gets quite shallow, quite faint. And then suddenly they go back to deeper breathing again and the cycle starts again. And at the same time, there's another pattern, which is the speed of the breathing. And it moves from quite fast and it starts to get a little bit slower and a little bit slower. And then there are pauses and then it starts again quite fast. Now, what's important about that is people know that it's likely to happen and so they can interpret it. And the nurse coming into your house, if she'd seen your dad breathing like that, that would have said to her, this person now is in deep unconsciousness. We're past that sleeping, waking time. We're into deep unconsciousness. The only bit of this brain that's still working is the bit that manages the breathing. And what's really important for families to know is that it can be noisy and they need to understand what the noises mean or it's frightening. So, for example, at the moment, you and I are being a bit careful about our breathing. We're trying to breathe in a way that doesn't make a noise on our microphones. When one of us is listening, we're just breathing softly. When one of us is speaking, we're taking a deeper but as quiet as we can breath in order to have enough breath then to breathe out and say a whole sensible phrase. So we're I'm so aware of my breathing right now, Kathy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and now everybody who's listening to us, I know that or everybody's aware yeah. of their breathing now. And in a minute, as we stop thinking about it, we will stop noticing it as well. Yeah. When 
we hear somebody make a noise with their voice, which they might do if they're deeply unconscious because they're just not conscious of their throat. They just don't feel it at all. They might breathe out through vocal cords that are a little bit closed, which is the way we speak. We tighten our vocal cords. And so we might hear them breathe out with a noise that sounds a bit like a voice and it might be a bit of a... Mm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you didn't know, if you hadn't seen that before, you might think that person was groaning or uncomfortable or trying to speak and you'd all be gathered around the bed saying, what, what is it? Say it again, say it again. And of course, they are deeply unconscious with their out breaths. They may make this noise, but they're not intending to make the noise. It's not a sign of distress. It's not trying to speak. And understanding that helps people to be able to say, oh, yeah, Uncle Joey's making this funny noise when he breathes, but we know it's because he's unconscious. Right. And that's yeah. just such a consolation to understand it. Another noise that people hear and they get frightened by is if the breathing has reached the phase in those cycles where it's shallow, but it's fast and it sounds like panting. And if you didn't know, you might think the person was struggling to breathe. Or if it's deep, but it's slow. So there's a very deeply drawn shuddering breath and then a long pause. And it sounds as though the person's working really hard to breathe. And families can be really distressed by it. And actually, it's another one of the signs that says this is that automatic breathing reflex that happens when a person's deeply unconscious. Once we can tell the story of the breathing changes, now we can be much more confident in the presence of somebody who's dying and also be able to say, OK, this kind of breathing, this is an end of life breathing. This isn't the same as dipping in and out of unconsciousness was yesterday or last week. And that can last anything, can it, for hours to days to absolutely so. right and it's quite unpredictable so people you know when I visit people at home or I'm doing my rounds in the hospital and somebody's doing this breathing and the family say how, how long do you think we've got and sometimes that question is just how long do you think we need to be here and be in this state of distress and sometimes it's have we got long enough to get the relative from the other end of the country here. Mm. And it's really hard to answer that question because we don't really quite understand what it is that determines when the breathing finally stops. So let's talk about when the breathing finally stops. The person's been in this state of unconsciousness, possibly every now and again, rousing again, although we should not expect that. So people have got important things to say. Don't expect a sudden moment of deathbed clarity. Say it now, say it while people are alive and well, say it again if they're poorly, say it again at their deathbed, but don't expect them to wake up. That's Hollywood and it's very unusual for that to happen. Sometimes they can, people who are dying can gurgle. It can sound quite sort of phlegmy. Yeah really important and again if you think about most of us who've not been in a hospital with unconscious people the only time we've seen somebody deeply unconscious might be if they've had so much to drink that they've passed out or somebody who's had a fit 
and is unconscious whilst they're recovering from having had a fit. So those are the only times normally in daily life where we might see somebody who's deeply unconscious. And we've been trained in first aid to lie that person on their side and then roll them slightly forward. So any saliva or any mucus from their lungs or from their nose doesn't pull in the back of their throat. When somebody's dying and they're deeply unconscious, we don't want to lie them in a recovery position. We want them to be in a position where if they do rouse and they open their eyes, they're looking at us. We want to be able to see them. We want to be able to be around them, hold their hand, see how they're doing. So it's the only time really where somebody who's really unconscious also might be lying where gravity can let saliva and mucus settle in the back of their throat or it might be the fluid that we're using you know on those little sticks to keep their mouth moist and comfortable for them yeah now we know about air and water don't we we know that if air gets into water it forms bubbles and the bubbles come upwards so what's going on when somebody's got fluid in the back of their throat will only be a thin film of fluid, but they're breathing through it in and out of their airway and the air is bubbling as it goes through the fluid and it makes this weird clicking, gurgling noise. And it's called the death rattle and it's called that because it sounds rattly and it's called that because we think it only happens as people are dying. But it would happen to any unconscious person, if, even if they were going to get better, if they were in that position and there was fluid near the back of their throat. Yes, I remember hearing about the death rattle when I was a little girl. And okay. It terrified so now, me, I have to say, because it just the name of it sounds Well, the scary. name of it is so awful. And in fact, also the voice that we use when we talk about it, because... People don't say, oh, oh, listen, that that's a really interesting noise. That's the death rattle. They say, oh, listen to that. That must be the <laughs> yes. death rattle. And, and we kind of psych ourselves up that it's something terrible. So let's just think about what's really happening there for a moment. If you or I had a little bit of phlegm or a little sip of tea or a little bit of saliva at the back of our throat, we would be coughing. We would be clearing our throat we'd be swallowing we might be so irritated that we we're actually gagging and retching because the back of our throat's got such rich nerve endings especially for that to keep the back of the throat clear so the airway is always protected if this person is just letting fluid lie at the back of their throat without doing any of that we know that they can't feel the back of their throat we know that they are deeply safely unconscious they're way beyond being bothered by sensory messages from their body so the very fact that they're making that rattling noise that they're letting the fluid lie there without trying to clear it is really reassuring it says this person isn't feeling their throat they're deeply unconscious that this isn't distressing for them and that they're safe this is safe dying and that might sound like a really strange thing to say but that's actually what's happening and again could that happen at any point or is that indicators that death is imminent no it's just something about being very deeply unconscious and it doesn't say oh you know we're down to the last few minutes or hours it can it can be a thing that can go on for days and in a lot of places they'll actually use an injection to dry up saliva to try to stop the person making the noise but actually that's the only time in medicine I can think of where we give one person a treatment to stop the distress for everybody else around them <laughs> because they are not distressed 
by it. Yes, and that's important to make clear. You know, we kind of get sympathy distress by just knowing how we would feel if there was something gurgling in the back of our own throat. So the breathing pattern carries on through that. So the rattle slows down when the breathing slows down and the rattle speeds up when the breathing speeds up. And not everybody gets that rattling. It varies from person to person. But gradually there will be increasing pauses in the breathing. And during one of the phases when there are long pauses, there will be a breath out and a pause. And the pause continues and we eventually realise there isn't another breath in. That previous breath was the last breath. So there's nothing special about the last breath. And again, Hollywood makes the last breath a thing. It's a, it's a gasp. It's a choke. It's a, you know, it's a moment. Actually, I've walked into rooms where families have been sitting around somebody's bed for hours and the person's breathing has been gradually changing and then reached that slowing down phase. And I've come into the room and I realise the person isn't breathing and the family hasn't realised yet because mm. the last breath was so gentle, it didn't declare itself. So that very end of dying is almost always very, very peaceful. I think everybody's expecting something much worse than that. So knowing what to expect gives people security, it gives people power. And I think that the more we can talk about ordinary dying and the process by which it happens, the less we'll torture ourselves about what the possibilities are for it all being terrible. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the things that I know was counterintuitive for me and certainly 
when my father-in-law died was when they're in the very last stages is not feeding not feeding them or giving them anything to drink I found that I had to sort of because I had done this crash course in death with my dad we had little sticks with sponges where you wet their mouth but it felt so odd especially you know coming from a culture where it's all about feeding people you love in those stages they don't need water or food do they it's really hard isn't it because we do show people that we love them by feeding them and so we have to understand that once somebody's unconscious they can't swallow safely anyway and i i remember trying to help this lovely lady to understand that we weren't refusing to feed her husband her husband was deeply unconscious and the yogurt that she was so lovingly spooning into his mouth was just going to slide straight down the back of his throat and into his lungs it wasn't going to feed him and that even if we could find a way of getting food into his stomach this circulation that's now starting to fail includes the blood supply to the gut that absorbs the food the the nutrition from the gut so it's not that we're not feeding it's that the body is no longer taking nutrition when people are still in that phase of sleeping and waking they might still fancy a tiny taste of something absolutely delicious So, you know, I'll probably want tea the way I like my tea Hmm. on those little sticks or, or, you know, maybe a gin and tonic. I'm not sure, really. I'll have to think about that (laughs) because even though we don't need to feed for nutrition, we can still offer tastes for pleasure and we don't need to lose both at the same time. But should that be if they ask for it? Or they're able to indicate that they want it. Yeah, or we could certainly offer, but they need to be awake enough to be able to to deal with it. But sometimes if dying is taking a very long time, and particularly if it's the summer and the person's sweating a lot, they can become dehydrated in a way that makes it difficult now for the painkillers, for example, that we might be giving them or the breathlessness management drugs we might be giving them to work properly in their body and then be properly cleared through their kidneys or through their liver. So sometimes we do put up um, fluid infusions, usually using a needle that just goes under somebody's skin rather than trying to get it into a vein. And it makes a little pool of fluid under their skin, which gets mopped up into their bloodstream. But that will only work while the circulation is still also working reasonably well. So towards the very end of somebody's life, they won't digest food even if we get it in them and they won't absorb fluid very well. So we're not being neglectful? No, we're not. And it's so important that people understand that this isn't neglect. Part of the process, it's the way the process has evolved. And in nature, as we come towards the end of our lives, we don't feel hungry. We don't feel thirsty. We don't require for our comfort those things that ordinarily are just part and parcel of the celebration of living. I also wanted to ask you about what else might happen when someone dies, because I've heard things like people suddenly wanting to move who've been fairly static. And the other thing I've heard a lot, towards the end, the dying person's eyes open. Why does that happen? The answer to that big question is we don't know. I think is is the honest answer. But let's talk about some of the things that happen so that people will 
not be startled if they were to happen. When I first qualified in medicine, about half of deaths were sudden deaths and half of deaths were deathbed deaths, if you like. And because we've got so much better now at preventing heart attacks, preventing stroke, preventing those sudden cataclysmic collapses and death, now about three quarters of deaths are deathbed deaths. We talked about people moving between deep unconsciousness, sleepiness, being awake, and then sinking back down again. And one of the things to look out for is that any of us have had the experience of being half awake and half asleep. You know, you've been deeply, deeply asleep and then the alarm clock wakes you. And before you've realised it's the alarm clock, you're having a dream about fire bells and fire engines and stuff like that. And you wake up and you think the house might be on fire. And then you realise actually it's the alarm clock and you can switch the thing off and you're orientated. We can have people who do not quite come fully to being awake. And so they might be a little bit muddled, a little bit clouded, not sure quite what's going on. So it's helpful to speak to them, to let them hear your voice, to let them see you smile. They'll set the tone for how they feel by the tone that they see in people around them. So if everybody's agitated, everybody's in a flap, voices are very staccato, there's a lot of shouting and worrying going on, then they will sense that this, whatever is going on here is not good. Whereas if what they're greeted by is gentle voices, speaking slowly, voices not raised, smiles, calm movements, they will have a sense that whatever is going on here, it's it's something that's calm, it's something that's okay. So when we're companions, the way we behave, the way we speak, not just to the person, but to other people around them within their hearing is really important. Because they say that hearing is one of the last senses to go, is that correct? They do. And in fact, there's been some lovely, very, very interesting research from Canada just last year, where um, a group of researchers talked to people who were having symptom management for advanced illnesses with a palliative care service. And they asked for people who would volunteer to wear electrical leads on their heads, EEG leads, once they started to become unconscious up to the very last moment of their lives. And they had a group of people who agreed to do that, which is absolutely fantastic. People are so generous. And what they've been able to see with their research is the EEG, so the electroencephalogram readings from the brain activity. And we know that there are different rhythms when we're fully awake, when we're drowsy or daydreaming or when we're asleep, or when we're unconscious. And what they've been able to see is that the background rhythms move from awakeness to being asleep, to being unconscious, just as we've described. So that's reassuring. What we think is happening is what's happening in terms of the brain waves. But when there are noises in the room, the person's brain responds to the noise, even when the background brain rhythm is unconsciousness. Now, we can't see from these EEG tracings whether the person is uh, able to say, oh, that's my friend Annalisa's voice and she's talking to me about I never gave her that recipe I promised her <laughs> or whether it's simply that there is a noise and there's a brain response to the noise. But certainly hearing is still connected to the brain in some way, even very close to death. These are the sorts of things if we want to talk to our families about 
you know, if if you get a chance to be looking after me while I'm dying, here are some things that really matter to me that you can help with. And these can be great conversations, really positive conversations about the things that bring me joy, the things that really matter to me. So talking about dying doesn't have to be only gloomy. Do you know what we used to do? When I used to go and see my mum and dad, I used to open a page in my diary and I used to say, okay, we're going to have the death conversation. What would you like to happen? And every year I would do it. We aren't a family that are afraid to talk about death. And when my dad died, we'd had that conversation in November and I knew exactly what he wanted. So I didn't have to worry about that. My dad's death was really quick. He put himself to bed one night and he was dead 24 hours later. He had terminal agitation and I didn't know about that. And I wish I had. It hadn't come up in any conversation. And it was only a fantastic hospice worker afterwards who really talked me through it and it gave me such peace. But for anyone else who experiences it, can you tell us a little bit about it? I certainly will. And terminal agitation is is another example of that not being able to settleness that sometimes people who are who are muddled between sleep and awake can experience. And so we've talked about somebody dying and the process that happens provided all of their symptoms are well managed. And so if you go back to that parallel with pregnancy and birth and dying and death, the antenatal period, if you like, the time, the weeks and the months before we die are a really important time for sorting out the symptoms of whatever the illness or illnesses are that we've got. Now, even when you do that, every now and again, a person will get an extra surge of discomfort, maybe their usual pain, maybe their usual breathlessness, whatever it is, or maybe they've just today got cramps in their tummy or their bladder is very big or they've got a headache. You know, things that could happen to any of us on any day can also happen to us on in the days while we're dying. And now because we've being unconscious, but there's all this extra sensory stimulus coming into the brain. We rouse a little bit, but we haven't roused enough to say, I'm uncomfortable, or I've got a headache, or I need to go to the toilet. In fact, some people do and say, I need to go to the toilet. And very often when people sit up and swing their legs around onto the floor, the first thing a seasoned nurse will do is feel their tummy and check if they've got a big bladder and try to help them to pass some urine. So terminal agitation is a state of not being able to settle into peaceful unconsciousness. And it's really hard for us to know what is going on. And usually what will happen is we'll run through the repertoire of what were the symptoms this person was having. So they were having itch. Okay, what are we doing? Because itch is awful, isn't it? If you can't get rid of itch, what are we doing for their itch? Let's give an additional dose of that. I would say probably seven times out of 10, that's the trick that then settles them down. Not because the dose of drugs has been sedative, but the dose of drugs has been right to take away the symptom that was causing them to be restless. But there is a group of people where we just can't work out what it is and they can't settle. If they're awake enough, they sometimes are talking about really interesting things like journeys, passports, tickets, travel. It's as though they know they're on the brink of a departure and they're trying to get themselves organised for that. Sometimes they can be soothed just by people being alongside them and we've just got to be prepared that they might want to sit up every now and again or they're a little bit restless in the bed. 
sometimes it looks as though they are so uncomfortable that if we could help them to be asleep using medicines, then that would be a kindness for them. And at that point, we would use sedative drugs and we would use in a big enough dose to make sure the person could become deeply asleep, that they can recapture the state of unconsciousness that they would have been in if whatever it is that's disturbing them hadn't happened. And quite often that's quite close to the end of life. And again, it's really important for families to understand that the dose of painkiller that took the pain away or the dose of sedative that took the agitation away isn't the thing that made the dying happen. It's the thing that stopped the distress and allowed the dying that was already happening to proceed. Yes, I think that's so important. That's what happened with my dad. He had slight tranquilizer and he'd had his second very low dose of morphine and he died very soon after. And in fact, I said the drugs killed him and I was really stunned by how he'd gone from being extremely energetic my dad died how he lived, <laughs> too dead. And I was so grateful to the hospice worker who rang me and just talked me through the drugs. And she said the sedative he had would be the equivalent to half a sleeping pill. And that's not what killed him, but that allowed him to die, if you follow what that means, you know, what she meant by that. And and that gave me peace. And it is important to understand it, isn't it? And that really we should remember when we're giving those drugs to talk everybody through that this this tiny dose here or it may not be a tiny dose but it may be the dose that this person is already used to taking because they've needed quite high doses in the past so I'm giving the same usual dose and what I'm intending to do is take away their pain or allow them to step backwards from this agitation but they may be so close to dying that when we've taken whatever is this distress away they will relax into the moment of dying. Is there anything you want to say now, for example? Is there anybody else who needs to be in the room with us now? Is, is another important thing to ask? Because we can anticipate that if this person is unable to relax, they won't definitely die, but they may be so close to dying that it will follow quite soon. Catherine, one final thing I want to talk to you about, which is something I've experienced of myself and I wrote about in your book, but it's about people picking their moment to die. That's when people who may have been dying and suddenly die when somebody arrives or die when somebody leaves the room. And it reminded me a bit of people who hold on to give birth until their husband or mum or someone arrives. It seems to be more than just anecdotal. I mean, is there any scientific evidence that people are aware of who's around them and choose the actual moment of death? Well, th there wasn't until this Canadian study of looking at brain waves in dying people. We weren't even sure that hearing was preserved. But you're right, there's this really interesting thing of the moment of dying because some people seem to wait for a piece of news. So they're deeply unconscious, and yet the family says, The baby's been born in Australia, it's a boy. And within minutes, the person has stopped breathing, or they're waiting for somebody who's charging around the world to get to them in time. And they 
wait until the voice is in the room or people who have been accompanied constantly by an attentive family with a rotor. Everybody's there. They've got, you know, there's never less than two people at the bedside. And then during one of those two people shifts, one of them goes to the loo and somebody else gets called to the phone. And that's the moment where the person stops breathing. We don't understand it. It does seem to be more often than can possibly happen by chance. But it's it's really hard to be clear about that because our brains filter information in a way that makes us look for patterns that are patterns that we recognise. So there's a there's a scientific study waiting to be done there. But it's it's so frequent that certainly in hospice care we warn families that it can happen and that they mustn't feel that they let somebody down if they weren't in the room at the moment the person died some people seem to need to be on their own they need that peace they need maybe maybe to just not worry about the people who are around them we just don't know if you know someone you love is dying and you're about to go and sit by their bed is there anything you would advise that family or the friends about how to look after themselves yeah, you, we we can't look after somebody else when we're fraught ourselves, can we? And being able to be a calm presence at that bedside is is the gift that we take, not just ourselves, but our calm self. So think about who'll support you. Take your slippers. Take comfortable clothing with layers, because when you're sitting for long periods. You don't know whether you're going to be too hot or too cold. Take your favourite pillow or whatever it is that comforts you when you need to sleep. Have a supply of your favourite beverage. So I'll take my own tea bags when it's my turn. Who will support you? Are they going to be able to talk to you day or night or the particular times to avoid? And then eat. Keep up your fluids. Go outside and look at the sky every now and again. Keep walking and moving and keep your body well. Try to get sleep. Try to have a rotor so it's not all on you. And remember that all we can do at the end is is be companions. The work of dying is the work of the person doing the dying. And it's a great act of love to be able to be alongside them at the end but it's only our calm presence that really can be of support to them. So do what you need and take what you need to take so that you can feel well, well rested and calm. That's lovely, Catherine. Thank you so much. I really want to thank Catherine Mannix for that incredibly reassuring and at times relaxing conversation. If you'd like to read her book, it's called With the End in Mind, How to Live and Die Well, and it's published by William Collins. You can also read more about it on Catherine's website, withtheendinmind.co.uk. The series is produced by Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Lo Cole. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Pocket Annalisa, and we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. 
If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.